It's another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, the host, sports manager at Cleveland.com, joined as every week by Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, this is the Browns post-mortem edition. We got a lot to get to today, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. You were out there yesterday. What was that like at the Browns uh, season wrap-up press conference? Unfortunately, it went about as I thought it would, which was that you had uh, Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Berry going into that design in mind. We're not going to say anything to make news, and we reluctantly will announce that they fired Joe Woods. And I do give Stefanski credit for saying, I fired Joe Woods. I mean, that that was good. Uh, And otherwise, they just wanted to, we're working on everything. And we're disappointed, but, you know, there was a lack of any real substance, at least in my mind. Well, you're talking about not being much news. I actually got some news from it Okay. <laughs> before we get into the Joe Woods stuff. But so the Browns let go, go of Joe Woods on Sunday night. But uh, Kevin Stefanski was asked about special teams coach Mike Prefer. That was my question. Special teams. Was that your question? I couldn't yes, remember it what it was. And his response was, those are all things we're working through. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a signal that Mike Prefer might not be the special teams coach going his, forward. I don't his other to comment it, was, but... we want to talk to all the coaches first. Now, is that simply because he wanted to tell Prefer in person that you're going to be back? Or if they had some more things to discuss? Um, I think that uh, Prefer's job should be kind of up in the air. Now, where it is, now remember Prefer and Stefanski go back to Minnesota together. Prefer was hired here basically by John Dorsey to come in and be the special teams coach with uh, Freddie Kitchens. And then when Stefanski got the job, he kept Prefer. So that's the history. So there might be a little more of a reluctance to fire him, although Woods also worked in the past with Stefanski. Um, you're, you're right. I, I did that. I couldn't tell. I talked to a couple other people there, and they said, I mean, you think if he's going to fire him, he just would have fired him along with Woods and get it up, you know, get it all out of the way. So I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, I just thought it was unusual. Like anytime Kevin Stefanski is asked about the coaching staff, he's mm-hmm. always just uh, lavish with praise, talking about what a good job guys are doing. And it would have been for easy easy for him to say, you know, Mike Prefer will be back with us, but we've got to talk about yes. some stuff. But but he didn't say yeah. that. So that I thought that kind of was a tip that. Maybe uh, anyway, we can move on. So, so Terry, uh, Terry, you've been advocating for that the Browns should move on from Joe Woods for weeks. I think uh, probably, probably months, several oh, weeks ago, yeah, yeah, a couple of months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it finally happened. Uh, what was your reaction when it did happen? And and what's next? I guess are the two questions. And, and really, it wasn't simply that. Well, you just want to blame Joe Woods for everything or whatnot. There were problems on defense, and. Then, as we found later on, which I didn't realize when I first started talking about a change, I just thought schematically, and I was tired of blown coverages, miscommunications, all that stuff. Uh, Then we find out that there was a lack of leadership on defense later on. And so it made no sense to bring it back because the way that team is structured, uh, I'm talking about from the top on down, uh, the head coach of the defense is really the defensive coordinator. In fact, that's one of my things about Kevin Stefanski. He's got to pay more attention to that side of the ball. And I'm not talking about getting deep into coverages or whatnot, but 
what's going on? It is remarkable when you look at there were four players that we know that were disciplined this year that didn't start games or whatever, and they all were on defense. It was uh, Perry and Winfrey, Miles Garrett, uh, Delpit, and oh my goodness, I have just Jadavian Clowney. Jadavian Clowney, right? He was just flat out sent home. Good, I forgot the the, the worst for last or whatever. So an offense that seemed like you kind of had tough, smart, and accountable. On defense, you had uh, things guys kind of go in their own direction. Well, and we've seen Terry uh, in yesterday's getaway day when the players were getting their gear and getting out. Uh, th- there's a lot of talk from the players about no sense of urgency on defense. The menu was too big. Uh, Ashley Bastic, our colleague, wrote a story today about the players saying there was just too much for them to to deal with on the game plans, uh, and that, that they wanted things simplified. That that just speaks to all the confusion that we saw in terms of coverages and where guys were supposed to be, and and not plugging gaps with the run defense. And that's just, that's it. That's pretty much it. And people should read Ashley's story. It's very good um, because she talked to some players. And when I was at midseason advocating for a change, it was because I was hearing that stuff, that it was too complicated. Guys weren't sure what they were doing and it it was showing up in the quote unquote miscommunications and blown coverages. I thought, all right, you change defensive coordinators and the guy they probably would have put in was, I think, the linebacker coach, Jason Tarver, has some experience a while ago with Oakland or somewhere as a de- defensive coordinator. And you simplify things. And then that gives you a look at how much was schematic and how much was playing. It wasn't just that that fixes everything, but it takes that. I didn't want them just to think, we're just going to f- change defensive coordinators and everything's going to be fine. Now, let's find out how much is the players. Uh, and I also like that Ashley had, which is that players saying, kind of trust us a little more just to take our guys. And we saw it again in the Pittsburgh game. Uh, Pickens is just wide open. What did you see on that play, David? Because you really are better at breaking down some of the stuff than I am. Well, usually when the Browns have blown a play like that, it's because they're in usually in thirds, deep thirds, and somebody takes the lower route instead of the deep one. Mm -hmm. So I got to go back and look at that one again. But just I'm just guessing that's what it was because that's what it's been, where somebody gets sucked in on a shorter route and then they go over the top into that zone. Um, But but Terry, so a couple of things I wanted to ask you about here. Are there any of the candidates that we've known that the Browns are interviewing that you would like to see get the job as defensive coordinator? I know they're talking like to Mayo from New England and that. I want to, because it's like a head coaching position for the defense, I want a guy that could be like a head coach of the defense. So that puts me in Schwartz's camp and Flores, those two. They've been head coaches before. Now, you know, Schwartz is, I think, 63. So you'd have to sit down and see. And I'm not, believe me, I'm 67. So I'm not, you know, saying, oh, we, an older guy can't do it. But let's find out where he's at right now in terms of his career. Because Bill Callahan's older, too, and he still has a lot of juice. But make sure that he's got the energy to come in and do it. You know, Flores, I, I have a feeling a lot of teams can be looking at him. And, you know, he has kind of the the cachet, I think, with the with the modern players. But he's been a head coach. And um, he, Belichick trained, I believe, which could be a positive or negative. I thought he did a pretty good job coaching Miami as a head coach. And Mike Tomlin brought him in quickly. 
he's a linebacker coach and I think special assistant or something like that. So uh, those are the kind of guys I'm looking for. Maybe there's somebody else, but those would be the two that I would focus on. Yeah, the Flores option is a really interesting one because I do think the players in Miami loved playing for him, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of people upset when when they let him go. And it, this, this kind of feeds into something I want to get your thoughts on, Terry. So Andrew Barry was asked yesterday, I'm not sure if this was your question or not, but he, he was asked if the team needs more vocal leaders. And I, I thought his answer was really interesting, and it got me thinking about something with the Browns, and I want to see what, what you think about it. And Andrew Barry said, well, we don't need no more. We don't need more vocal leaders. We want leaders who are effective rather than caring about what their style is. And, you know, you know how there's people can lead in different ways, right? Terry, there's Mm -hmm. people who lead by example. There's quiet, like, you know, Nick Chubb is a leader. He's not vocal, but he puts in the work. Players respect him and they follow his lead because he has credibility because of his production and the way he works. And by the way, another sign of leadership with Chubb was when Kareem Hunt came in, he embraced Hunt rather than felt threatened by Hunt. And he also knew that, you know, Hunt had some issues off the field and, Chubb was a guy kind of like, let's go to Bible study. Let's do this stuff. You know, he was modeling how to act. And Kareem, other than had one real kind of brief thing with police way back when, that's been it. And yeah, so and that, that was that's a leadership. great example. That's a great example yeah. of leadership. But my contention, Terry, is that the Browns need more guys who are vocal leaders. Mm-hmm. And if all you had to do was watch the way the Steelers played or watch that Lions-Packers game. On Sunday night, I don't know if you saw that one. The Lions went into Green Bay with nothing to play for. They were eliminated from the playoffs earlier in the day. Their sole mission that night was to win that game for themselves and their coaches and to keep the Green Bay Packers out of the playoffs. That was why they went there, and they did it. They were underdogs, and they won that game, and they played with passion and joy, and they had a great celebration after the game. And where is that with the Browns? Like the Browns are playing their arch rival in the last game of the season with a chance to keep them out of the playoffs. And there's, I just think on this roster, I'm not in the locker room every day and I don't know kind of the dynamics of the players, but I just think they need more players to get guys fired up, get in their face. Um, You know, Bill Belichick does a coaches show in Boston and he did a segment one time, like, Hey, look at last week. None of our players are celebrating with each other, getting each other fired up after this big play. Now look at this week. Now look how these guys are all supporting each other, Mm -hmm. patting each other on the helmet after a big play, jumping around. Like, look at the difference between last week to this week. And if you look at this Browns team, I don't know that there's enough of that on this roster right now. It's very, and it might just be the tone of the organization, very even keeled, but I just feel like the joy and the passion was not there Sunday. And it's something they, they should really think about when they're making this defensive hire and also the kind of players they bring in in free agency. Yeah, that's why Flores is an interesting one for that. Uh, maybe that's why Mayo is on the on the radar screen, you know, the guy from New England, uh, as opposed to maybe somebody like Schwartz. Although I do know that uh, the front office likes Schwartz quite a bit. So you're correct. Um, they are a, It's a weird group, and some of the people who speak out, like John Johnson or whatever, I see him blowing coverages or things. So I, you know, you just kind of wonder. I mean, one of Bear 
Andrew Barry said it, and he actually quoted Stefanski, who I think was quoting somebody else. He said, you know, personality is fine as long as it's followed with production. Um, so you need your your players, some of those guys, to be more vocal and who are good players. I thought Njoku, for example, on, on um, offense, you know, he spoke out some. But, you know, I don't have big problems with the offense this year. You know, should they run the ball more? Yes, all that kind of stuff. But overall, um, they were a professional unit. The defense was not. And then even Miles Garrett, the tough thing is I remember the same week that Miles Garrett would, took Perry and Winfrey to task for whatever he did to get his, uh, I think he had to set out a week, uh, is the same week that Miles Garrett had the car, ca- car crash, you know? Um it just, it, you need, uh, you're right. They need not only the players to there, I think perhaps somebody to be in charge of that unit to show them how it's done. Yeah, and I, I'm just, you know, an important moment to a lot of Browns fans was the Jarvis Landry rant in the locker yeah. room mm-hmm. <laughs> when when they run hard knocks. And I was trying to think, like, who who on the defense would give that speech? And who on the offense would give that speech right now? Like maybe David Njoku on the offense, but I'm trying to think of someone on defense who would do that. I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, Njoku um, would. And maybe but, it does know, come from the coordinator. I don't know. Yeah, and also just generally on offense, though, I'm not saying it's all perfect. I just don't have a big problem with the offense. Or I have bigger problems with the defense than seemingly most people do because whenever I would bring that up, they would say, well – and then we get in all these deep analytic stats. And I'm not anti-analytics. I'm not one of those guys. But I also know one of the bottom lines, I forgot who was telling me this. He said, you know, well, still one of the biggest analytics is how many points do you score and how many do you give up? Because that's what goes on the scoreboard. And they were still giving up a lot of points. And I just... Think, things have to change over there. You know, Miles does have to grow up. He, he's he got a chance to be a Hall of Fame player. He does. But he does need to do, to really, you know, take another step in his game and also make sure that he, he's leading the right way. Because these cryptic things he would say, you know, all that. No, say what's on your mind or don't say anything at all. It was funny. They talked to Ch- uh, Chubb after the game. I didn't say he was disappointed. He also just said he was exhausted. <laughs> I, mean, I, can, I think, and he didn't just mean from running for fifteen hundred yards. I think he takes this to heart so much, David, that he's just exhausted. He's exhausted by he came in his first year, and then remember they were that was the year uh, uh, that they were um, with Hugh and the coaching change and all that. Then his second year, he has Freddie Kitchens. Third year, now, boom, there's the first year with Stefanski, and, uh, and, and he has a big year. But then it's been eight and nine, seven and ten. So his five years, he's had probably one year he could really enjoy because he is very team-oriented or he wouldn't have embraced Hunt like he did. And I think me- mentally it is exhausting for him and, and some of these others. Well, they have a long off season now to recharge and reassess where they're at. And uh, so, Terry, you have been – well, in today's column, you pretty much flat out said that you would like to see Kevin Stefanski give up play calling next year. Yes. And um, you think he should hand it off to Alex Van Pelt and, and have his 
um, have more time to spend with the other parts of the team. That's that's where you stand right now, right? That's what I would tell him. Um, and I'm assuming he and Van Pelt work together fairly well. They always seem to indicate they do. Uh, and I mentioned how Pat Shermer in his rookie year kind of did it like Stefanski did it. You know, he was all into the offense. He was rookie year as a head coach with the Browns in 11. And he was trying to kind of do his old job and new job at the same time. And he discovered that he just wasn't paying attention to some of the other things going on. So the next year he brought in Brad Childress, whom he was very close to. Childress was up in the press box. They would put the game plan together on offense. He still wasn't like meddling all over the place. but um, And then he also said that Childress ran a lot of the meetings, which freed him up to go to the special teams meetings and the defensive back meetings. See, they're all meeting at the same time in different rooms going over film. So if you're up to your ears and eyeballs and putting together the offense, you're not in those other rooms. You're not really seeing what's going on. This would allow him to do that. In other words, be he's still like the CEO of the offense. And then what, what Shermer told me that the thing was that, so Childress upstairs, he'd be upstairs. He would call the play. He goes, I'm on the headset, but I don't have the play sheet just in front of me all the time. I'm watching the game. And he said four or five times I might change something. We got, we, we figured out a way to do it. But generally, you know, we're, you should be prepared anyway. So it's third and six. You have an idea of the couple plays you're picking from, that kind of stuff. And if they weren't having some of these problems the last two years, then I'm not talking about this. But to act like you just run it back the same way, I think is foolish. But I did get the sense during that press conference, Terry, that Kevin Stefanski is open to a lot of change. That was my question, too. I asked him yeah. about giving up plays. He said, well, I'm open, whatever's good for the team. I didn't know whether to make that was a honest statement or a politically correct one. Yeah, I, I kind of took I, I took it even beyond the play calling, Terry. I think he's open to looking at how he communicates with the players. He's open to looking at at everything, like how they, how they run their meetings. I, I think he's looking at this as like a real reset. You know, it was interesting, too. Now, we're going to switch it over to baseball a little bit. And one of the things that Terry Francona, in fact, sometimes he says he feels bad because he throws so much on his coaches. You know, they're always running their little, the infield drills and all this. And, he, and I think in the old days, he was more involved. But what the Guardians have done is say, no, Tito, we just need you to be that presence. Put out the fires. You know, pick the guys up. In other words, be in tune with your clubhouse. And it's hard to do that, for example, if you were had your head in the pitching coach meetings all the time or you were in the batting cages all the time. Now you could wander the batting cage. You could wander down the bullpen. You could, you know, bring the kid in. You know, Sandy's got the catchers, by the way. You know, for, I know we're going off, but Sandy Elmer, catchers love working with Sandy Elmer. That's his favorite thing to do is work with the catchers. So uh, that's what I would like to see maybe more of. And the Stefanski, I mean, clearly he can't be Francona. That's a unique personality. But he also can't just be the guy that, uh, even though I think his play calling is pretty good, and your fans are going to yell about the run, the ball, whatever. The bottom line is when he had Jacoby Brissett, they were 10th in the league in scoring. You remember I talked about, there's my analytics. You're 10th in the league in scoring with Jacoby Brissett. Baker Mayfield's best year ever was with Kevin Stefanski calling the plays. So 
twice he's had guys who would be considered marginal starting quarterbacks and done well with them. And But that's not his only job. It's not. And Terry, a couple of things. Like if you watched Ohio State when Urban Meyer was coaching, he wasn't calling the plays, but there were times during a game where a call would, it would be fourth and one. And he's like, we're running it up the middle with our jumbo lineup. Yeah. Like, and he, and he would just veto whatever. And he would throw out a, like, we're going to do this concept. And there's ways that Kevin Stefanski could do that. Like you were saying, even regardless of what the play is, Hey, we're going big here or let's pa- let's sure. pass it. Let's get the ball to Amari. We haven't done that yet. Um, and this, this would allow him too. like when the quarterback comes off the field, you know, you don't have to be there by him or there. You can simply, or you have a feeling, I want to get over into that offensive line huddle. You know how they have those guys there. Or I want to go over and talk when they have the, the secondary. Just stick my head in there for a minute. And even just say, come on, guys, you know, don't give up now. Whatever it is, just something like that. Um, you can't do all your jobs. I mean, it was a different thing. I remember for years, I was a pretty good NBA writer. And then when I became a columnist of the Beacon Journal, I spent about a year and a half trying to do both jobs. And I realized I can't do both jobs. You know, I had to really, really learn how a, how a columnist takes is a bigger look at the sports department of all the different sports, as opposed to staying in my comfort area at that point, which was the NBA. And that's that's all I'm saying. I hope he is what he said is correct. He's open to it. Yeah, and Terry, the the playoff win over the Steelers. I mean, ter- you know, <laughs> Kevin Stefanski was in his basement <laughs> for that one and wasn't calling anything because he and had it COVID showed how day. they could really be. And that that's not a knock on Stefanski. It just shows that. In fact, remember there was a one or two other coaches out. Uh, Callie Br- uh, Brunson, the the female, uh, I think she took the tight ends in that game, or she had one of the position groups herself. They were missing like I think Callahan was out for that game too. They were like missing their kind guys, but that was what impressed me that. He had the coaches coached up. Belichick is a guy that really believes his job. He's not Mr. Personality, but his job is to coach the coaches. And as you said, though, he is pushing his guys to show that emotion. Well, we'll see how that goes, Terry. It's yeah. uh, going to be an interesting offseason. There's a lot of things that I think they're going to be taking inventory of, and we'll see where things go. So I wanted to get to one last thing before we move on from the Browns. You've been hearing from some fans and some other people in the media about how next year is all about Deshaun Watson. And what do you think about that take? Well, clearly he's got to play better than he has before. And, it, you know, when you invest all that, it, it it's important that he plays well. But I looked at Deshaun Watson's records in in uh, Houston uh, as a starter. He was three and three as a rookie, and then he got hurt. Eleven and five, ten and five, and four and twelve. Statistically, if you look at his best year for your fantasy types, that was a year where they were four and twelve. He threw for four thousand eight hundred yards. He had the second highest QB rating. And he threw 33 touchdown passes compared to only seven interceptions. He completed 70% of his passes, and they went 4-12. and And they went 4-12 and because their defense stunk. They went 4-12 and because uh, they traded DeAndre Hopkins. They didn't have quite some of the uh, same players. They went 4-12 and because there was some dysfunction in the coaching staff in front office. In other words, he could roll those numbers up and still go 4-12. and So – my point is they've got to fix these things that we just spent the last 15 minutes talking about, you know, leadership and defense and all those type of things. 
Because even if he puts up those kind of numbers, there's no guarantee that you're going to suddenly get – and you're playing this rugged division. I mean, 9-7, and seven, you don't make the playoffs like the Steelers? Well, yeah, and, and Terry, how many drives did the Browns not get to go on this year on offense because the defense couldn't stop anybody on the run? The clock was getting chewed up, and oh. teams are marching 80 and 90 yards down the field running the ball. That that plays right into Deshaun Watson's offense and the numbers and everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the defense is going to help the offense be better. There's no doubt about it. And he can't just carry the team on his back. He can't. And I also think he's got a lot of work to do. And the Browns have to figure out how best to use him. And in my mind, he's still bolting out of the, co- the pocket way too soon. I think he's got to. I know that's part of his game, but, man, he, he is out fast. He is all over the place. Everybody was saying, oh, the Browns gave up seven sacks on Sunday, but two or three of those were because of what you said, Terry Watson, leaving the pocket early and running into sacks. I I watched one. Jedrick Jedrick Wilson. I'm just going to bring that one up. Good job there. And he was blocking. So that's on on Watson's right side. So, and so he's the left out right side. So he's blocking the guy. He's got him way out on the perimeter there. And Watson first ran to his left, which is fine, away from the block. Then he doubles back, and he runs right into where Wills pushed that. I forgot who it was, Highsmith or one of those guys. And it's like, well, what are you supposed to do? Well, lots of work through there in Berea, and that's what they'll be doing this offseason, both in terms of scheme, how they're going to block for Deshaun Watson, as opposed to what they were doing with Jacoby Brissett, how they're going to change that defensive coach. There's going to be some new defensive coaches in addition to coordinators, so it'll be very interesting to track that. we got the combine come up in February and then on to the draft. So, All right, Terry, let's take a break. Uh, we got a lot to talk about the Cavs here. I want to get your thoughts on possible trade names that Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the team, has thrown out there in a story he has posted on cleveland.com today. And we've got some really good questions about your faith column last week about the purple car that your father bought when you were a kid. And uh, we've got some other good Hey Terry questions too. The Browns, should they, a name for a defensive coordinator that we haven't seen yet that I wanted to get your thoughts on. So anyway, we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. Terry, let's get into the Cavaliers here. The Cavs are 26 and 15, three games behind the Celtics in the Eastern Conference for the top spot. And if the playoffs started today, the Cavs would be the number four seed. Donovan Mitchell was named the Eastern Conference Player of the Week on Monday, and LeBron James was the Western Conference Player of the Week, which was kind of interesting. But um, what have you thought of this road trip so far, Terry? Uh, the loss at Denver without Donovan Mitchell and then the win over the Suns, who were shorthanded on Sunday night. Um, what have you thought so far? Overall, okay, so as we speak right now, they're 26 and 15. That means they win 52 games. And 52 is a lot in the NBA. So that is a really uh, big improvement in my mind. Well, some people, well, they won 44 last year. Uh, When you start getting up over 50, that's like getting over 90 wins in baseball. That's really difficult to do. So. That's uh, that's impressive to me because it has not been smooth. You know, Garland's been hurt. Garland's been out. Other players have been out. Um, even Mitchell's missed a few games. So it's, it's not as if most things have gone right. Some things have gone right, but some haven't. You know, on the trip, they took care of no Chris Paul, and they took care of Phoenix like they should. Uh, that 
game in Denver was probably a, just a good move. What rate we were talking last week about Mitchell and his minutes and that um, after scoring a 71 points, fine. You know, periodically just have to rest him and make sure he's ready to go. Um, so I, but all, I just look at the overall picture defensively, they're number one or number two, depending upon what week it is. I always look at that number cause that's the big one there. And I am concerned some about Garland's, he just can't stay healthy right now. He's having one of those years where it's the eye, the thumb. His game in some ways reminded me of Mark Price. And also he's built much like Mark Price, you know, the thin six-footer. And Mark Price was always battling the hamstring, the hip pointer, the uh, the shore shoulder. And that was the one downside for Price was trying to keep him healthy. And the big battle for years was was get a good backup point guard, get a good backup point guard. In fact, uh, what really helped Price is they drafted Terrell Brandon towards the end of his career here, and he was playing some behind him. So what do I say about that? Ricky Rubio. See, Rubio coming, that fixes some of these things, assuming his knee holds up. And Neto's done, by the way, a pretty decent job for a guy they just picked up off the street. But Rubio, Rubio can click. Remember, he's played with Mitchell in Utah. They they were together. Seems like these guys all love Rubio. So that's I'm I'm upbeat on the I'm upbeat on the Cavs a lot. You know, if they were a, if they were a stock, it's like you know five stars, fingers up. You know, I'm not saying they win a title, but I really want to see what they look like in the second half. So with Rubio coming back, and and I've seen a lot of people writing about, does Donovan Mitchell need to do less for this team down the stretch in terms of not just minutes, but also in terms of scoring? And mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of firepower on this team. Would you like to see Donovan Mitchell maybe give up some shots, or would you like to see him keep dominating the offense the kind of the way he is? Because it's absolutely it's give us yeah, give us some shots, save those things. You're going to need them in some of these playoff games. Uh, the big men can score. Rubio is the one guy on the team that really knows how the, to pass to the big men in different ways. Garland does a good job on those high pick and rolls, and they throw the high lop to the big man. Garland throwing those guys to the, the ball, the post, it's almost a lost art. He's not very good at it. Mitchell's not very good at it. Rubio is. You know, Rubio's European trained, and those guys from the time they're like 13 learn all the basic fundamentals. I mean, look at Jorgic the other day. I was watching the ad thing of him, Mr. Triple Double. Look at this big guy's going down. He sees the whole floor. He's passing. Oh, you know, they put him at the high post, cuts, no look passes, all those things. Um, those guys have a real advantage. And, and maybe just because I'm an old guy and I like the fundamentals, but fundamentals are fundamentals for a reason. All right, Terry, so uh, Chris Fedor, who covers the Cavs for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer, has a real in-depth look today at the glaring <laughs> weakness that this team has had for what seems like 10 years now mm-hmm. uh, at small forward. The Cavs are really hamstrung here because of the Donovan Mitchell trade. Um, they, they gave up their draft pick, their first rounders in 25, 27, and 29 to Utah as part of that deal. There's a lot of names in that story. Uh, one of them is uh, Boyan Bogdanovich. Um, but, well, I guess the first question is, do you think the Cavs have to make a move for a wing to make a deep playoff run, or would you stand pat with this roster? I guess that's the first question. I'm not desperate to do this. Um, but I will say I'm not a big Levert guy on this roster. 
and he he needs the ball a lot. You know, we were just talk, discussing about the big guys. He needs the ball a lot to be effective. I will say this: he's tried really hard to fit in, you know, as a small forward and and kind of the three and D guy or whatever you want to call it. But that's not his game. Now, if I could use him, as Chris suggested in the story, it's a must-read for Bogdanovich or uh, Hardaway Jr., he mentioned. Uh, Those are things that interest me because, one, it it frees me up from Levert, who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And um, I would bring in a guy that I think who's outside shooting and uh, just would, would be a better fit. Because remember, basketball is not everybody just gets together and play one-on-one. You know, Karis is probably going to beat Bogdanovich one-on-one, but that's not what that's not what we're playing here. And you want some more shooting around uh, your big man. So that 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 really interests me. Uh, his his looking in, in in those directions. Now the other thing we talk about assets. Remember, the Cavs did trade a number one pick, future number one, to Indiana for Levert a year ago. Because they didn't know they were going to be getting Mitchell, of course. They were hoping for a, a, a shooting guard that could score. And that pick will go to Indiana this year because unless the Cavs miss the playoffs, and if that happens, then it's we don't even want to think about that. Well, yeah, and just to summarize that real quick, Terry, so the Cavs 23, 25, 27, and 29 first-rounders have all been traded and they can't trade any more of their first rounders because of the Stepien rule, which those of yeah. you know Cleveland sports history was when Ted Stepien was running the Cavs. He basically traded all of their first round picks for how many years in a row, Terry? Oh, it's like four in a row. Four in a row. Getting, so like, <laughs> getting guys back like Bill War, War Robenzine and Richard Washington. It was it was incredible what they were doing back then. So and, the and NBA the made that, a rule that you have to you can only trade every other that you have to have a first round pick every other year. I think the Cavs could trade their twenty twenty four first rounder but they couldn't do it until the night of next year's draft so that's Something why they like don't that. have any any um, first rounders to trade so and how about sorry, this Terry, go ahead and along those lines for a little history is that before gordon gunn agreed to buy the Cavs from stepian he sat down with uh the commissioner and um said and the league said i can't buy this team we don't have any picks for like for three years so they then to so desperate to get rid of Stepien, they allowed him to buy first round picks for the next three years, and they kind of slotted them in after the lottery for like two hundred grand a year, which is a lot of money back then. So that was another clause which enabled them to 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 get the team back together, and that hooked that into the the Stepien thing too, because they realized how damaging it was when you didn't have number one picks for for several years. Um, but one thing they did, I mean, this is an all-in move for Donovan Mitchell, but not just all-in for this year. They have him for two more years, and, and the team will continue to grow. But that is the downside of this. All right, so you're not desperate to make a move. No. But if you did, and, and Chris mentioned this in his story, you would tr- you would use Levert, who has an expiring contract, to get someone who's, a, who's more of a 3 and D fit kind of more of a round peg in a round hole than Levert has tried yeah. to do. Is that, that's where you stand on all this, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anybody that you're kind of fired up to get? I mean, Bogdanovich would be a, a good fit. Anybody else that you're excited on this list of names? Ananobi from 
uh, Toronto he mentioned. I'd like to see him too, but I don't know where that's at. Um, and I haven't really looked, thought deep on some of these others, but it'd have to be a, a, a really good, just a good outside shooter and a guy that's a catch-and-shoot guy, um, that type of player. I, I'm just, I just feel good about it, though, David. You know, one thing when you're putting Okoro out there or uh, Stevens, they they give you the defense that they have. Remember early in the year, I kept saying start Lamar Stevens, start Lamar If you want better defense, start guys that can play defense. Well, those guys don't need the ball. and we look so focused on offense and you can't, when I was talking with Mike Fratello for my story last week, and it's like you, if you want guys to defend, you have to put some guys out there who do defend and then actually sends a message to the team. Look, Okoro is playing because I say, get on that guy. And he gets on that guy. You know, Okoro is playing, you know, because I need somebody who's going to give up their offense and, I need a junkyard dog, so Stevens is playing. And that's what we're going to do because the rest of these guys are out there. I mean, Mitchell is not a good defensive player. He can at times, and, and Garland physically can be overmatched. So uh, that's how you just – it all has to do with fit. And I remember when um, David Griffin was a GM here, and he kept talking about – we got to get fit around LeBron, fit around LeBron. One of the big mistakes the Lakers made is they still won't surround them with enough shooters. You remember how the Cavs are always bringing in guys that could make outside shots so that LeBron could have the ball and they could spread out and make those threes, and they won a lot of games doing that. Yeah, a lot of bad fitting going on in L.A. right now with LeBron. Mm -hmm. And year after year, too, David. All right, Terry, so the Cavs play Phoenix – Sorry, they they, they are played continuing. Phoenix, they yeah. played Phoenix. They're continuing this five-game road trip. They got three games left tonight at Utah, which is Tuesday night. Then they're Thursday at Portland, and Saturday at Minnesota. By the way, yeah. along those lines, that was I, I just felt so bad when Markinen was in that deal because he was a fit with these guys because he could make that outside shot. Now you're seeing he's his game is just blooming. But I understood if I'm Utah and I'm trading Donovan Mitchell, I got to get somebody back here. That could play now, and Markin has just bloomed uh, in that system there, and and you know Sexton's where he ought to be coming off the bench and scoring. Uh, so I mean, good for them, uh, and but great for the Cavs because one thing I remember when uh, the trade was made, I was talking to uh, Fertel and then an executive from another team I can't name because of uh, of that stuff. I can't talk about other team's players for record, and both of them said the same thing: is like, do you realize that? Mitchell can go get 50 in a playoff game. He's done it. And I'm like, you know, no, I didn't know that at that time. And he goes, you got to see it when he's on one of those things. Both guys said the same. You just got to see it. Well, we've seen it. It's something else. This guy can get to the basket and score on anybody. You know, when he gets in trouble, he falls in love with his three-pointer some. But my goodness, you could just see when these games are big, big time, you know, he can really carry you for stretches where the offense is stalled. Yeah, and talk about fundamentals. It's not just power and speed. It's no. euro steps and all kinds Left-handed of Left-handed layups. He actually yeah. can make a layup with both hands. Another lost art. <laughs> all right, Terry. Um, let's move on. The Cavs will finish their road trip. Um, let's get into your, your, your faith column last week we talked about was about your dad 
buying a purple car when you were a kid and you kind of use that as a metaphor for making decisions and how we deal with people. And we got a couple of interesting letters here that about your your car column. So I wanted to share that. It'll kind of is our faith column part of the right. It was a today. purple Chrysler 300. It was in the early 60s. Because I remember we were, um, I lived in Parma until I was like 11 or 12. And it was definitely in Parma. Westminster Drive is where we lived in Parma, just down from Parma Town. A little, all you know, real small suburb suburban house and he rolls in with this purple car and he goes and tells my apparently my mother and he didn't discuss it, it's like hey you know i bought a car bought a new car she goes out looks like goes it's purple and then inside it was white and on top of to protect the white interior he had bought these or it came with these vinyl or not sorry plastic seat covers you could see through of course you discover when it's hot those things just stick to you and remember back then most cars didn't have air conditioning and so that wasn't a great move i guess it kept it clean but very sweaty and on top of it it was not discussed at home and then he kept saying oh i got a great deal and my mother's like i bet you did it's purple it's ugly you know and how often in life we settle for what's quote unquote a great deal, even though you look at it from the out, somebody else from the outside goes, what are you buying? <laughs> All right. Well, this came from Joe Dillon from North Olmsted, Terry. And he says, Hey, Terry, based on your age, I'm going to guess your dad's 300 was either a 62 or a 63 purple or embassy red as the official color is titled by the Chrysler corporation. It might've scared your mom, but it's actually a low production qual- color for later, later, Model 300 series. It most likely had the 383 motor, but in the event your dad was a car guy, he'd have gotten the 413, which was what the Beach Boys sang about in the race story in that song, Shut Down. My fuel-injected Stingray and a 413 were revving up our engines, and they sound real mean. <laughs> and Joe says, your dad's purple Rhino would be worth around fifty dollars to $80,000 today if it was in good shape. Not so bad of a deal now, is it? LOL. I'm a car, a classic car enthusiast and follow all the classic car auctions like Barrett Jackson. Your dad had one of Chrysler's <laughs> renowned classics. What'd you think of that, Terry? I sold it <laughs> like in two years. So right. And <laughs> what do I know? I just remember those seats being hot. That's all that, that, that those plastic <laughs> seat covers. And my mother just thinking the thing was hideous and my dad realizing that, which we actually sometimes even do in relationships, well, we got something because it was available and it seemed like a good deal at the time. And I, it's like, I'm not even going to go there and how some folks get married that way. You can connect the dots. But sometimes even uh, just for, for uh, friendships in life, we go, why am I involved in this? We've all had our purple cars. So yes. right, one more on the car, Terry. This one is from, from Mary McHugh. And she has a sports tie and she says, Hey, Terry, I loved your piece on your dad's purple car. I realized the metaphor was in reference to relationships, but with you being the exceptional sports writer that you are, I could also see the metaphor applying to our Cleveland Browns. I don't have the advantage as you do to be in the locker room talking to our heroes. So I can't gauge the authentic feelings of how this decision adversely or not affected them. But I'm pretty sure that the decision to make the Watson trade was the equivalent of buying a purple car. Boy. Sure, sure, it might have seemed like a good deal for Watson anyway, but it's still a purple car and it's embarrassing. And upper management keeps glossing over the hideousness and continues to sell us fans that it's something better. The team's internal problems are merely a secondary effect of Stockholm syndrome because the guy who bought the purple car 
is still calling the shots and you either go along and pretend it's not ugly or you get traded. Thanks for summing it up so eloquently. LOL, a Pluto fan, Mary McHugh. Thanks for that letter, Mary. What do you think of that, Terry? <laughs> well, unless Watson and the team together, remember he said we talked about that, you know, become the type of team that consistently makes the playoffs and goes deep, um, it's a purple car. It, there we it, go. Only, I got a feeling my dad probably didn't pay as much as the Browns did. He might have paid two hundred and sixty bucks instead, or two hundred and thirty bucks instead of two hundred and sixty million, yeah, right. right? Well, I got another call. So, you know, if you say you're, you still had your dad's car right now, it'd be worth like sixty-eight thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, on the on the classic car market. I mean, Lord knows where that thing is. Uh, probably in in some junkyard somewhere. All right, we got a couple more. Hey, Terry, questions. Thanks for those, by the way, about the car. That was that was really. Uh insightful so all right this one is from doug meredith in akron he says hey terry should the browns go after lovey smith to be their defensive coordinator lovey of course was the bears head coach brought them to a super bowl then he went to illinois and then was with the texans and just got let go by the texans um, and is very respected a disciple of the tony dungy tampa two defense terry what do you think I'd prefer to go with uh, somebody just with a little more fire. Lovey Smith, actually, personality kind of fits in with, with Stefanski and the rest. But, but to our point, I think we both agreed earlier that something a little little more fiery. So I would say no. All right. And our last question is from Tom S. And another international question this week, Terry. This one is from Perth, Western Australia. And mm. Tom says, hey, Terry. Can the Browns restructure Deshaun Watson's contract to pay him this year with whatever they have left in cap space to save that money for other contracts in future years? Can you imagine how the NFL would go crazy if they did that? Because that would really look like you're circumventing um, the suspension. Because remember, the contract, and it wasn't just Watson's contract shaped that way. They also did it with... uh, Miles Garrett and a couple other of those deals where it's like a million and a half the first year and the rest of signing bonus. If they were to do that, the league would probably just go nuts. And so the answer is no. And the other thing to keep in mind is they have that salary cap room. You could roll it over. I think it's like 30 million under the cap right now or something like that. So you could roll it over into next year. So there's no uh, real um, pressure to do anything like that right now. So anyway, like you were saying, like in the NHL, you cannot be over the salary cap by a penny ever. But mm-hmm. in the in the NFL, it's I think it's a three year it's a three year process where they right, look at they what you spend over that. a three year window. Yeah. So um, to answer that question, you're right, Terry. I don't think rolling any of the money to the front, even if they could, would do anything. Cause yeah, it's a three year it, it, window. They've done different things with, with different contracts, and and also you don't want the league wasn't happy with the whole thing anyway with that contract. The last thing you want to do is try to be sneaky again. All right. Well, thanks for those questions. Hey, if you want to send us your question, uh, send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking or Hey Terry in the subject line. We'll try and get it up to next week's podcast, or you could hit Terry on his Facebook page. So, uh, all right, Terry, I think that's about it for this week's podcast. You're going to be heading out to the Cleveland state women's basketball team practice today to write about the Vikings who are off to a great start this season. Yeah, they are the women's team. It's one. They are fifteen and one, 
and they have a lady named Destiny Leo from Lilwick, and that's really about all I know about them. But hopefully I'll know more in a few hours. All right. And do you have a book recommendation for this week? Yeah, it's a book simply called Prayer, and it's by Philip Yancey, one of my favorite Christian authors. And it's a I like because it, it was a real, real, realistic thing of, you know, how do you view prayer? You know, it, 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 the temptation is always to have God as a great ATM in the sky. That's not the case. He talks about in his own life where prayers weren't answered, quote unquote. You know, how do you how do you pray when you don't feel? What is prayer? You know, I will say prayer is a conversation with God. We have it in our heads a lot. It's not. And, you know, other people could say, you know, it's doing devotions, Bible devotions. Some people say it's praying a rosary. I mean, there's all kinds of different forms of it. But it, and believe me, while it sounds like a kind of a dry topic, Yancey is a really, really good writer. And um, I I like a lot of his thing. What's so amazing about Grace is another one book he wrote. Another one called Disappointed with God. Uh, I think that's a, is a is a pretty good one too. So uh, check out some of his stuff. But the book is on, the book on the up today is called Simply Prayer. Philip Yancey. All right, thanks for that, Terry. We love to hear any book uh, recommendations that anybody listening has. Send those in if you can. We'll love to get those on the podcast. So, all right, Terry, that's going to do it. Um, there's going to be a lot of Browns fans praying for a good defensive coordinator <laughs> here this week. So we'll be tracking that. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we? That is any- it. You're still trying to line up some appearances, I'm sure, for the first quarter of the year here for libraries, et cetera. Yep, that is that is very true. And um, I'm just again, I'm just thankful that people are listening to the podcast. And uh, once again, Browns fans proved to be very hardy souls after this year. All right. Well, we'll be tracking everything here and the defensive coordinator and all the other changes going on in Berea. Have a great week, everybody. We'll catch you next time on Terry's Talking.